So I want to start with, with a little game. We played, we played a game earlier, but I want to start with another game. And uh, for this game, it's going to be word association, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a word or phrase, and then you just shout out one word. That's all. Just one word. Pretty easy, right? All right, one word when I give you this phrase. The sinking of the Titanic. Sad. Okay. Did you say Joey? Is that me or a different one? A different Joey. Was it me? I'm the Titanic. This is a sinking ship. All right. uh, The next one. You guys ready? Pastor John's legacy at Grace Community Church. Amazing. Boss? Long? It's good. I think faithful. Um... Courage. Um, all right, one more. But this time I want you to answer just to yourself. How God relates to us. Now, there's probably a lot of words that are going through my mind. Which to choose? And I want to argue that the Bible's word for how God relates to us would be friend. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Nope. That's not the word. I know the word. The angels in Isaiah's vision are saying, holy, holy, holy. And, you know, that you're right, they are. Um, But holy, by definition, is really just another way of saying another category, or other, or different, or so set apart. But it's not saying what the essence is. Still others of you might think, no, I think glory is the word. And you know, I think you're more onto something there. But also the definition of glory is just a word that means the measure of, or the weight of something, or the totality of the essence of something, summation. A second definition of glory is display or showcase or to bring attention to, like when you say to glorify. You're not adding to the glory of God. You're merely bringing attention to the unchangeable essence of God. But both of these words aren't saying what the essence is. Glory is the stage or the weight, but what's on the stage? What is being weighed? So let's use that word glory, and I want to trace it through the Bible from beginning until the life of Christ to show what the end of the spear is and how God relates to us. My argument will be as follows in four points. Number one, the foundation of the redemptive story is friendship. Number two, the glory of God revealed is Jesus. Number three, the high point of that glory is the cross. And number four, the goal and glory of the cross 
is friendship with God. That's my argument. So tonight's talk will be entitled, The Great Friend, The Glory of God in the Friendship of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, we'll actually be looking through the Bible, so you can start in Genesis, but then we're going to sort of crescendo in the final hours of Jesus' ministry in the upper room. Perhaps you've been listening to the series for, from, you know, from the beginning of the first uh, week, and maybe it's discouraged you, maybe, like either encouraged or discouraged, but if you were, have been discouraged in the sense that you feel like you, when it's come to, when, when it's come to friendship, perhaps you've broken trust with friends. Maybe you've distanced yourself from a friend. Maybe you've made a mess of relationships. But what if you can have a friend who knows you better than anyone? And the better that you got to know this friend, and as you deepen your friendship with them, they still loved you. And they even genuinely liked you. And in the deepening of that friendship, it actually transformed you to become a better friend. You could have this friend tonight. His name is Jesus, and he is called the friend of sinners. Let's get to know this friend. Let's start at the beginning of the Bible. Point one, the foundation of redemption is friendship. Before there was anything before there was matter, before there was time, before there was space even, which is really hard to comprehend, there wasn't nothingness. There was triunity. There was relationship. There was, in a sense, friendship. Listen to this inner Trinitarian conversation between the Son and the Father about what was going on before creation. Quote, You loved me before the foundation of the world, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. John 17, 24. And there was no need in God. In that triune relationship, there was no lack of anything. There was only complete fullness of relational joy. Yet God created, but it wasn't out of a need in God. It wasn't as if something was missing in the triune communion. It was out of an overflow of God's fullness that he created. It was out of an overflow of that genuine joy in relationship that he created. And the crown jewel of that creation it was humans. Isaiah 43, 7 says, humans were created, quote, for his glory, as a showcase of himself. How does man showcase God? Think about it. How does man showcase God? Well, I mentioned turning in your Bible to Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 1. Let's look at verse 26 through 28. I'll just summarize, but it's good to know this verse. You can memorize it, underline it, highlight it, circle it. What this verse is saying, what these verses are saying, is that God created humans to mirror his image on earth. 
and how? Well, I think, as you know, as we saw before the foundation of the world, there was relationship. In relationship and companionship, humanity reflects the glory of God. Adam and Eve were invited into this eternal friendship of the Trinity, but they also reflected that relational character of God. God, as the great friend to them, provided generously everything they needed. He provided love, he provided sustenance, and he provided knowledge. But one quick side note, in this sort of thinking through this provision of of knowledge particularly, this unending knowledge of, can you imagine just being Adam and Eve and asking questions of their friend and just discovering what creation is? Side note I want to mention is one of the amazing things about eternity and new creation in our future is that in our relationship with God, in the new creation, it's eternal learning. Jonathan Edwards, in volume 13 of his works, how many of you guys have heard of Jonathan Edwards? A lot. Good. He's awesome. Uh, he says this, quote, The saints will be, pro- will be progressive in knowledge to all eternity, meaning we're continually progressing in our learning. He also adds, The number of ideas of the saints shall increase to eternity. This is because God is eternal and we're not. Humans are not eternal. We're everlasting, but we had a beginning. God has no beginning. God is immortal and we are mortal. God is creator and we are creation. There will never be a time when we don't have the identity of creation. We'll always be forever creation and he will always be creator. So in a sense, we'll always, have, we'll always be looking at our creator as a horizon of sorts, never-ending discovery of who he is, God forever providing that knowledge. And in the garden, God provided that knowledge, but humans broke their friendship with God. Before Adam and Eve disobeyed, they had already doubted his love. Satan offered them a cup of distrust. And distrust is always the poison of friendship. And so they drank that cup down. And the essence of sin is not merely breaking rules. It's breaking trust. Every sin is rebellion, yes, against God's authority but it's also a rejection of his friendship. Under every sin lies a failure to not trust God's heart. They believe Satan's lie to not trust God. What did he say? What was the question he asked? Did God really say? It's really the question under every single sin. In every single doubt. So Satan asked that question. What's the craziest thing about that question and the promise that Satan would say that if you do this thing, that you will be like God? What's so crazy about that? 
Well, they should have asked the question, what do you mean, Satan? And proceeded with, we already are like God. We're made in his image. They also believed the lie that if they were to eat of the tree, they would be gaining something that God was withholding from them. They were offered knowledge without God himself. It was a way to sort of get around God to get the thing that they previously had gotten from him himself. But the breaking of that relationship with God, it wasn't just vertical between humans and God. It was also horizontal. Sin by nature is actually antisocial, if you think about it. And because of it, sin always ruins relationships. Pastor John says this, and I love this quote. I've said it many times. Every problem that Grace Church has ever faced can be traced back to a failure to love. And so in the garden, you see that sin separated Adam and Eve in how they covered themselves and they hid from each other. And in self-preservation, they turned on each other. The fall is the loss of friendship and the loss of home. Exiled from the perfect home and the family of perfect friendship. But in a display of faithful friendship, God didn't squash his friends now become enemies on the spot. He promised a reversal of this breach in relationship and a reversal of curse itself. God promised that one day a future human, a descendant of Adam and Eve, would be the rescue. He would be the reconciliation for relationship. And he would be the restoration of their home. In Genesis 3, God makes that promise. So as the story moves forward, it moves towards restoration. And in the storyline of the Bible, you get these mile markers of sorts. You guys ever been hiking or you get these like checkpoints along the way to see how far you are? Well, there are, in a sense, of the redemption story throughout the Bible, you have these sort of mile markers that give more information about what's coming and clues about what that restoration will look like through that promised human. And those things, those mile markers, are called covenants. They are relational promises along the storyline of the Bible. Mike Riccardi, he's a pastor here at Grace, He calls them the backbone of redemption. With each of these relational promises, you get more information and more clues about this coming rescue. God's covenants with his people carry the Bible storyline forward. Each major covenant builds on each other, moving towards redemption. And in each one of them, interestingly enough, you have a representative for the people. And that representative, each one, has a special friendship with God. In fact, it's mentioned many times of those individuals, the word friend. We're going to look at a few. Just, let's just look at five of them. The Bible doesn't call the first one a covenant, but there's similarities with one. It was with Adam and Eve. 
and they had a special relationship with God, as I mentioned. But in that promise to undo the mess that the serpent did, the, the, that the serpent sort of undermined, um, he gives them hints at what that person would be. It would be a seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the snake. That was the first clue. And then you have Noah. And Noah had a special relationship with God as well. There's many people in the Bible who it says they walked before God, but there's not many where it said they walked with God. And Noah was one of them. Noah walked with God. That's a relational and a friendship type of phrase that's used. That's Genesis 6-9. Genesis 6-9, Noah walked with God. And then another um, covenant rep um, in the Abrahamic covenant God called Abraham, quote, my friend, Isaiah 41.8 and 2 Chronicles 27. James 2.23 said that Abraham was a friend of God. Moses, in the next covenant, in the Mosaic covenant, spoke with God face to face, quote, as a man speaks with his friend, Exodus 33.11. And then you have David. In the Davidic covenant, a man that God himself calls, quote, what? A man after my own heart in Acts 13, 22. And you read really unrivaled communion in the Psalms of David. In fact, I remember um, hearing one sermon series at Grace through the Psalms. And the, the, the series of that sermon series was called Communion with God. And I thought that was really fitting. That just showcases the sweet friendship that David had with God. But along the storyline of redemption and with these covenants, not everyone in their community shared the same friendship with God. Yes, those covenant representatives had a unique friendship with God, but that wasn't shared with the rest of the people. They were merely representatives of the people but they pointed forward to an ultimate promise and an ultimate covenant that would make everyone a friend of God. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, There will be a day when no man will have to teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. That's what all the covenants ultimately culminate in is the new covenant. All of this, God in eternity past, creation, the fall, and the promise of rescue finds its epicenter in these relationships. Friendship is the foundation of this story. Let's look at point two. The glory of God revealed is Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to go back to one of those covenants, and that's the Mosaic Covenant. And God meets with Moses on top of where? Mount Sinai. And the people are around the base of the mountain, and God meets them there. It's really the first time that he sort of introduces himself to this people and in a, in a unique relational way. And... God met them in a display of fire, literally, on top of the mountain. 
And the people were, were scared. They didn't want to go near the mountain. The mountain shook, and you have this storm of, of fire uh, on top of the mountain. And God, but God would not leave them there to just send them off to the promised land. God enters into a relationship with them, and he walks with them through the desert. And he, he camps with them. Now, I just want to mention real quickly something about what they were given at Sinai. What, were, what was Moses given at Sinai? Ten Commandments, but more fully, the law. Um, Psalm 19 says that the law is God's self-disclosure, meaning Psalm 19 is really God's self-revelation in creation and specially in the law and his word. So when God gives the law to his people at Sinai, he's really just giving them a picture of himself. And he's calling them once again, just like Genesis 1, 26 through 28, to mirror his character. A lot of times we see the law as this burden, but it's a way for us to be like our father. On that mountain, God didn't stay there, but he went with them. And in this newly given law, they could not only be with him in, in not only would he be with them in, uh, in the middle of their camp, but they would also get to learn how to mirror that same character. And he lives, as I said, in a tent, it's the tabernacle, in the middle of their camp. And he, and he provides for them daily. Daily food, daily miracle food. And he displays himself in the day as a giant what? Pillar of fire. Just like giant fire nado is what my son calls it, literally. (laughs) And even as they enter the land, they get to the promised land, they eventually make it in after many years. They make it in and, and the glory of God goes with them. And he goes and he lives in the middle of their city, in the temple. But according to Ezekiel 10 and 11, because the people betrayed him and they breached that relationship, the glory of God departed from the midst, from the, their midst, left the city, but also promised that one day the glory would return. So the prophets and the people, they waited and they waited and they waited 400 years. And then Yahweh returned. John 1.15, Actually, John 1, 1 through 18 is just a great passage to read. And it talks about how the glory of God was revealed in Jesus. And that he, quote, tabernacled amongst them. Just like the just like in the middle of the camp, he came back. And in John 7 and 8, there is this really uh, unique holiday that the people of Israel had. And I think the closest thing that comes to this holiday, which is called the, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, would be like maybe our Halloween. It's the only time that you know, families and neighborhoods literally just go out into the streets and run from house to house. I mean, there's not really any other holiday uh, in our 
culture that's like it. But here, it was a week-long, running-in-the-streets holiday celebration. But what families would do, they wouldn't just you know, be out in the streets. They would literally set up tents in the middle of Jerusalem, and they would live out there for a week. And one of the things they would do in the middle of this celebration, actually at the end of this celebration, is in the middle of the city celebrating their wilderness wanderings, to not forget the wilderness wanderings, and to not forget that pillar of fire that led them and provided for them in their midst. They lit a giant torch in the middle of Jerusalem, a giant pillar of fire. And Jesus, on the last night of that celebration, stands up in the middle of that celebration, in front of that pillar of fire. And do you know what he says? He said, I am the light of the world. And do you know what, at the end of that chapter, what happened? The religious leaders decided to kill him. Because obviously there's only one of two things he's saying. He's, only, he's, he's either saying that I am the one that led you to the wilderness, not Yahweh, or I am Yahweh. And that's exactly what he was saying. Jesus is the return of the glory to his people. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. Now, if Jesus is the glory of God, then what is at the apex of that glory? Let's look at the highest point of this glory. Point three, the crescendo of glory is the cross. If you had one day left to live, if you knew that you had one day left to be alive, what would you do? If you had a few hours left, what would you do with those hours? Would you spend it alone? Or would you spend it with your closest loved ones? If you decide to spend it with loved ones, what would you say to them? What would you spend that time, those last few hours, talking about? You probably wouldn't talk about the weather. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus on the last night that he was alive on earth before the cross, is he had a few hours of conversation left with his disciples, his closest friends. The Gospel of John records the last few hours of of Jesus' time here before the cross. And do you know that John dedicates one-third of his entire gospel to those last few hours? Genesis, I'm sorry, John 13 begins a conversation, one last conversation with his disciples. And as soon as Jesus leaves, I'm sorry, as soon as Judas leaves the room in in John 13, the clock immediately starts ticking. Because what happens when Judas leaves the the room? He's going to, to have Jesus arrested. He's going to the authorities. 
And as soon as the door closes to the upper room, when Judas leaves, Jesus immediately knows his clock is ticking, and he immediately uses the word glory five times. Jesus connects the display of glory with his cross work. Look at John 13, 31. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. When you think of the glory of God, many of you might think of power and grandeur or maybe uh, possessions or wealth. When John shows us the blazing center of God's glory, he doesn't point to the sky. He points to the cross. But let's look more deeply at the bullseye of this glory. What is the meaning of the cross? Let's look at point four. The goal of the cross is friendship. Look at how Jesus exposits the cross in that final conversation with his friends. Let's move forward to chapter 15 of John. John chapter 15. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus wanted them to grasp the meaning of what he was about to do. He wanted them to see the cross really as a cosmic act of friendship. And look at the next verses. The cross was not only a preemptive act of friendship, it was also a gateway to secure friendship in which the entire redemption story was no longer the same. Something changed at the cross. What was that change? Look at 1515. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But what? I have called you friends. Drew Hunter says this, The hinge of redemptive history was turning, and the way God related to his people was changing. This quote, no longer but now moment, signals a new era in salvation history. You see, in the past, only the covenant representatives had the privilege of friendship with God. But now the ultimate covenant representative did what none of them could do. He makes us all friends with God. Drew Hunter says this in his book, Made for Friendship. If you want to know God's glory, look at Christ's love. And if you want to look at Christ's love, look at the cross where he died for his friends. Jesus' sacrifice for you and me, if we'll have him, is the resplendent radiance of God's glory. You see, the newness of the new covenant is friendship with God. He also says this, When we see Jesus as the Holy One, radiant in splendor, we behold glory. 
when we see this same exalted king offering himself to us in friendship, we don't see less glory. We see more. How did the cross bring us into friendship? Reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 2 Corinthians 5.19 He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We have all sinned. We have all deserved judgment. We've earned that, each and every one of us. But Jesus took from us, to those who would trust in him, the sin and the judgment on himself, if we'll have him as king and savior and friend. And because of it, we're united with him in his resurrection. God restores friendship by not counting sin against us, but by declaring also us to be in the right. His faithfulness to God, his Father, is now counted as our faithfulness. Many of us in the Reformed world, and we love um, our theology, we love our expositional sermons, we love the truth of having a clean slate in the gospel. The clean slate we get in the atonement, it's precious. But we shouldn't treasure our clean slate merely. We should treasure the fact that the cross, quote, brings us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Samuel Rutherford, in his hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, says this, The bride, speaking of a wedding, the bride eyes not her garment. She's not looking at her own garment, not her wedding dress. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Lastly, don't think that the father reluctantly befriends us because Jesus beat the system to get us in. The Father decisively justifies us because he wanted us. Puritan Walter Marshall says this, justification is God's way of taking you into friendship with himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does friendship with Jesus look like? What does Jesus' friendship and the great friend of Jesus, what what does that friendship look like? I want to give you five words quickly by going back to that upper room, that final conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And I want to pull one word from chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, very briefly. Word one constancy. 
John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus' love is to the end. His friendship doesn't end. Second word from chapter 14, affection. As a believer, Jesus thinks of you as his friend. When we're not with our friends, we miss them, right? Look at John 14, verse 3. Quote, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. That is so intimate. I'm, you almost hear the longing of Jesus to be with them. I will take you to myself. That where I am, you will be also. Jesus can't wait to be with us. Word number three, transparency. Friends are those in our life that know us the best. They know the deep things about us. We have our hearts open before our friends. Our true friends, real friendship, is a heart open before them. Look at John fifteen fifteen. Jesus is that to us. Quote, For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus has an unguarded openness with us. Word number four, empathetic. Jesus is aware of our hurt and our pain. I'm gonna, I want you to look at chapter 16. Let's look at verse 6 and 7. We're going to look at a few verses. Quote, But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Skip to verse 24. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. He's about to bear the weight of worldwide sin on himself. And in even contemplating that reality, sweats drops of blood. But yet, he's concerned about their sadness. That's selfless empathy. And that includes your hurt and sadness. He's a sympathetic high priest. Next word, proactively. It's a proactive love. It's very active. And it's spiritually benefiting. Look at at chapter 17. Jesus is praying for his disciples in this chapter. He's speaking to the Father and praying for their needs. He's anticipating their needs. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them 
in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is proactive in his friendship. He cares about his friend's spiritual well-being. And I have one more word, specifically, also from chapter 17. He doesn't just love generally. He doesn't just love a nebulous group of people called his friends. But Jesus loves you uniquely if you are his friend. Look at John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only. Who is he talking about? His disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It's not like Jesus is telling his disciples that they're loved. And I'm drawing these conclusions to apply to you guys. Jesus himself is applying it to you. He's praying for you in this passage. He mentions you here. To those who would come after him, after this, the disciples, he prays for them, and that's you. Jesus prayed for you in that room. In closing, seeing the glory of God in the friendship of Jesus Christ requires a response. When friends are away, as I mentioned earlier, you miss them. You miss your friends. Some of our friends are at Regen, and we miss them, and it's only been one day. Jesus is away. He's, he's not with us right now, but he's headed back. And if you are his friend, I know you miss him. Not more than he misses you. And when he, he returns, he's coming actually in judgment of this world. And that might sit uneasy with you that he is coming back as judge. But to those who are his friends, you don't cease to be his friends even then. He's your defending friend even as judge. If you don't know him, he offers you his friendship. Trust in him as king and savior and friend, and he'll have you. To those who are his friends, his friendship never ends. It's called union. That cannot be broken. Your friendship, union with Christ, it cannot be broken. But when we sin, though union doesn't change, communion does. Union is unchanging, but our relationship with him on a daily basis could change. So be mindful of your friendship with him. What does that look like for you? Listen to God. And what I mean by that is go to him in his word. Not just to get doctrine, but to get the voice of God. When scripture speaks, God speaks. Cherish his words. Two, 
talk to God. Don't just use prayer like dialing 911 when we need circumstance control or merely circumstance control for even others. See prayer as, as I said earlier, an open heart before your friend. Open your heart up before God. Talk to him throughout the day. And lastly, look like him. Mirror his friendship-like character. Mirror that friendship by befriending others. I opened with one word to describe God. But what would people say if I gave them your name and they were to come up with one word for you? May we live in light of our great friend. May we grow in the identity as a great friend. Let's pray. Father, thank you for inviting us into friendship with you and to your triune perfection. Thank you for Jesus, the very face of your glory. As we gaze at his befriending work, may your spirit transform us into that same image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.